Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. The season of Advent, uh, as you know, it comes to a close this week on Thursday, December 24th, Christmas Eve, the annual time of focused, expectant waiting and preparation that's rooted in the first coming of Christ. And so Advent is, is rooted in that first coming in the incarnation when Jesus comes to this world, but it also then serves to prepare us for the second coming. And, and sometimes I wonder if we miss that a little bit. Not that we don't consider it at all, but sometimes we're so good at looking back and remembering and thinking about the Christmas story and the nativity and all that comes along with Christmas that do we really allow it to cause us to then look forward and to say, Jesus, you came, but you're coming again. You're coming again for us just as you promised in your word. It's in this consideration, this looking back and remembering that should prompt us to look forward with excitement. That we are intended then, as the season of Advent is supposed to accomplish, to then draw hope. To have hope, to have a sense of of peace, to have joy, to have love, all because of what we've considered about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For me, my faith is strengthened, my hope is increased, there's peace that truly comes over me when I consider what God has done in His Son Jesus and what that means for what it is that He's going to do. And we just sang of the classic Christmas song, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain. Tell what? That Jesus Christ is born. Well, what does it matter that he's born? Well, that has implications, right? If we truly know who Jesus is, if we understand who he is, then the fact that he's been born means something. It's not just the birth. It's not just some unique birthday. It has implications for what's to come. And so his his birth begins something. And then that leads to something else. and, and, And it leads to a promise of even more. And so telling of Jesus, telling on the mountain, it's a testimony. It's telling others of what it is that he has done and what he's going to do. We're to tell of it as the song suggests, from the, from the hilltops, from the mountaintops, in a way where it just says, you're going to scream it out to the world. You're going to let the world know about Jesus so that all can see and hear. But I would submit to you this morning that while we may want to tell it on the mountain, what we come to in Scripture here this morning connects us with a few different things in Scripture. And it could be said here that we're also to tell of the mountains, the things that happened on the mountains throughout Scripture. These great moments in Scripture that reveal to us just who He is. And so as we make our way through this this morning, I trust that you'll see how significant the mountains in Scripture are. As we come to Matthew 17, in the account of the transfiguration on the mountain, we hear from those who were witnesses of a glimpse of the glory of God that will be revealed in the last day. As we will see, these men, they wanted to tell of what had happened on that mountain, but at this particular time, it was was not yet the time. Jesus told them, you can't yet tell others of what you've seen and what you've experienced. There was still another event that needed to occur before they could share of what they had seen on this mountaintop that we'll consider in a moment. Another mountain experience needed to take place before it was time to tell. 
We'll consider these mountaintop experiences here this morning and what they mean for us today. And as I mentioned, we'll pick up here in verse 28 this morning of chapter 16. If you recall in chapter 16, we find, that we find Jesus and the disciples in the area of Caesarea Philippi. It's here amongst the evidence of pagan worship that Jesus asks his disciples who they say that he is. And Peter, if you recall, so confidently declares Jesus to be the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the Christ, which is certainly spot on. Peter, as you know, he nailed it. This conversation then, however, leads to Jesus making statements as to how he will build his church. And certainly then of the great implication is the fact that that those who want to follow him will have to deny themselves. They'll have to pick up their cross. They too will have to endure suffering. The sad story for any Messiah seeker of the day, or even still today I suppose, is that the proverbial victory that they long after, the crown that so many desire, comes only after the cross. Not before. Jesus sets the record straight in chapter 16 that he who loses his life is the one who will find it. So in this context then of suffering, Jesus says to the disciples in verse 28 that there's some of you here as they're thinking about suffering, as they're thinking about death, as Jesus has just said to them, you'll have to pick up your cross too because what's then going through their minds is we're going to have to die. And he says to them, verse 28, assuredly I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And so He says to them, there's a few of you here that will see the glory of the Son of Man before you die. Chances are they really had no sense of what Jesus was talking about. And perhaps they added it to the list of things that they pondered and discussed and questioned and said, what, was, what did Jesus mean when He said that? And so then we move on into chapter 17, and according to Matthew now, six days have gone by. So Jesus sets the stage here for this. It's within the context of suffering. He says to them, some of you are not going to die before you see me in my glory. And now we come into chapter 17, and Matthew notes for us, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Now generally, when Matthew is this specific in terms of saying six days, there's a purpose in that. And certainly there is, but we can only speculate as to why. Now where are they at this point? We, we don't know for sure. It says that they went up on a high mountain. They might still be in the area of Caesarea Philippi. Uh, and, and, and so here it says that they go up onto a mountain. And this is common. We've seen Jesus do this before. In fact, uh, mountains are, are very important in Scripture over and over again. Amazing things happen on mountains. And now this mountain, some say it's Mount Tabor in Israel, others say it's Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is in the area of Caesarea Philippi. In fact, it's one of the highest mountains over there. Uh, And so it certainly could be that 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 is the mountain, but we don't know for sure. Wherever it is, though, Jesus, we see, takes Peter, James, and John, and he leads them up on this high mountain. Just the four of them. And Scripture then says that Jesus was transfigured. Now this word transfigured, the Greek word for this is the word that we get our term metamorphosis from, which means a complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. Oftentimes the best example for us when we think of metamorphosis is the caterpillar, this little fuzzy worm that goes into its little cocoon and it comes out 
to us looking totally different and beautiful and majestic in many ways. But Jesus here, it says that he was transformed into something extraordinary. It says, in fact, in the second part of verse 2, his face, it shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Now, I don't know that we can truly grasp what is happening here. Certainly someday we will. But here we see that they are coming to a greater understanding of who Jesus is through the course of Scripture that we've considered this far, yet no time before this had any of them experienced something like this. None of them had ever seen anything like this before, nor have we. Jesus changed. No doubt there was a brightness that made it difficult to see. His clothing changes. Some translations say they were made whiter than any launderer on earth could accomplish. I mean, this has to be an incredible experience, and it only continues to impact how they see him and what they think of him and their awe of him. If I'm honest, I can't help but say, Lord, I'd love to experience a glimpse of your glory in that way. I think we could all do with a glimpse of his glory. Now, if you're wondering a little bit about this situation, because Matthew really does just jump right into it. Hey, we got taken up on this mountain, and then Jesus changed, right? It's like so quick. I mean, what's going on here? And, 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 and did Jesus just take these guys up there and go, hey, watch this, <laughs> right? Like sometimes you read this story and it can seem a little odd. Like what, what, what? we're going to go up on this high mountain. I'm going to show you something, right? That's not exactly how it went down. In fact, I love how this, I love how this takes place. Luke, uh, and, and, and often is the case within the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that we get a little bit of a different perspective on various events. Luke gives us insight into this. In his gospel, in, in chapter 9, verse 29, he tells us that this occurred, this transfiguration occurred while Jesus was praying. And so the implication here is that he's taken these disciples again, and we'll see him do this later on, but he's taken them, and he says, you come with me, and they go up into the mountaintop, and Jesus just begins to pray. And I'm not saying that this was unplanned or involuntarily, involuntary, but it seems that the revealing of his glory came in part through his connection and communion with the Father, and that the disciples were just able to observe it. That's a powerful prayer time, right? I can't help but wonder in the other times where it says that Jesus just got away to pray, is this what was happening? That his glory was being revealed? If the glory of Jesus is revealed in the woods and no one's there to see it, does it happen? Right? Yes, it does. And it's incredible, right, to think about, and it's not that we can assume the place of Jesus or that we can necessarily accomplish what it is that Jesus accomplishes. Of course, we know that. But I just can't help but think of the way that you know, he, he is fully man. And he, and he teaches us of the importance of abiding and of seeking the Lord and of seeking the Father and the importance of that communion and that fellowship and to see what happens here as Jesus is doing that with the Father, that it changes Him. We've often said it's not that prayer changes things so much as prayer changes us. And I, see we, I think we see that on display and so here it is, it's Peter and James and John, and by the way, it's three, right? Because in this particular time, you needed two or three witnesses to validate a claim. I think it's no accident that Jesus brings these men along for a variety of reasons, no doubt. And so here they're observing Jesus in at least a portion, just a portion of his heavenly glory and by the way, you'll love this too, that Luke also tells us in chapter 9, verse 32, that these guys were heavy with sleep. 
Something about going to pray with Jesus just puts them to sleep. And many of you can probably say, yeah, prayer puts me to sleep too, right? Those of you that have your bedtime prayer routine, it's the greatest way to go to sleep. And I don't think it's that bad of an idea to talk to God as you're dozing off. But they're heavy with sleep. And so it seems that they're kind of awakened by this. That's the most incredible alarm that's ever gone off for somebody, right? To wake them from sleep. And so here they are observing this with Jesus. And then it's not just this. It's not just that Jesus is transformed before them. But then two more people show up. In verse 3, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. So they're waking up from their heavy sleep, and they see Jesus entirely transformed in a way where it's probably blinding them. And then Moses and Elijah walk up, and it says that they're just talking. And if they were heavy asleep, I have to think one of them was thinking, like, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. Or maybe like, no, don't wake up, don't wake up. This is incredible, right? But in either case, they're thinking, this can't be real right now. And so we're looking at this, and you think, wait a second, now Moses and Elijah show up? Two great prophets, long gone at this point as far as they were concerned, are now standing with Jesus just chatting. What do we make of this? Well, we see here that Peter attempts to make something of this. Verse 4, then Peter answered. And and here's, (laughs) we're going to be hard on Peter again today. Okay, so just forgive me. But it says that Peter answered. Notice, no one asked. (laughs) So when it says here that Peter answered, I find myself always going, Peter, nobody asks. This wasn't an opportunity for you to say something. And so Peter answers and he says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here right now. Of course, I speculate once again on his tone, but I can't help it. Because I think he's thinking, yes, this is another moment. Maybe I can redeem myself from the whole you know, rebuking that just happened last week. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Yes, that's got to be it. That's got to be what he wants right here. Now Luke once again gives us insight saying, Peter did not know what he was saying. <laughs> right? Matthew left that out. Matthew, I think Matthew was just gracious. Matthew was like, it's okay, Peter, I got you. Luke's like, nope. Peter didn't know. He didn't have a clue what he was saying. Okay? Mark also says, that he didn't know what to say. So it seems as if all the guys are sort of speculating as to why did Peter do this. Well, he must not have known. He was sort of asleep still, you know, whatever the case may be. So it it seems here that Peter operates under the principle of if you don't know what to say, just say something. That's not a great lesson, okay? So apparently he's thinking, or maybe not really thinking, that this is so incredible. Apparently Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, listen, From Peter's perspective, maybe they're all some kind of special here, and we need to make a place for each of them to reside. Which is silly. Because what Peter should have known by this time was was that this was not somehow uh, communicating that Moses and Elijah were equal with Jesus just because they were there. And that because of this, that they were deserving of the same treatment. And so this foolish idea gets interrupted by none other than God Himself. In verse 6, or excuse me, verse 5, while he was still speaking, that being Peter, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they did exactly what they should have done, and they fell on their faces. 
and were greatly afraid. You see, a week earlier, Peter had aced the test and received praise from Jesus, only to be rebuked shortly thereafter and now was interrupted by God. That's a rough week. Now, here's the other thing is Luke tells us when this cloud shows up, that it sort, of, it sort of envelops them. It sort of overwhelms them. He even says that they enter into it. I want us to understand that here because this mountaintop experience is truly incredible. Not only have they seen some massive transformation of Jesus, whom they'd spent so much time with, and now they're, they're witnessing aspects of His glory, and then Moses and Elijah show up, and then this cloud of light and sound, and, and they're sort of venturing into this thing. That's pretty bold too, Right? And so as they go in, then God speaks. And they hear this voice. And so it's all just very incredible. And they hear God exalt His Son. They hear Him exalt His Son above Moses and above Elijah. Now remember, who's Matthew writing to? Matthew's writing to the Jews. What is he writing about? That Jesus is King. He wants his brethren to understand Jesus is greater. Jesus is better. And so here, though they had exalted Moses as being the greatest prophet, and of course Elijah being caught up into the heavens, not even dying as far as they were concerned, that here God's saying, this is my son. He's greater. And this is a valid exhortation to us still today as God says he's pleased with his son Jesus and desires that we listen to him. God here says, this is Jesus. Hear him. Listen to him. And folks, we need to listen to him still today. Now before we continue, let's pause for a moment here and consider the, the, the presence of Moses and Elijah. Why? Why are they here? Well, I mentioned at the beginning that mountains are important in Scripture. Here we are on this mountain reading of Jesus' glory being revealed and then Moses and Elijah show up and it's clear that what Peter decides to say is wrong Right? Because Moses and Elijah are not Jesus. They're not equal. They were prophets who helped to prepare the way for Jesus. And so look at what happens next. Verse 7, But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. You see, he was the one that was still there. Jesus only. Friends, what was Moses amongst many things? But, but let's say that, let's consider Moses for a moment here. When we think about Moses, and let's say we think in terms of Scripture and the books of Moses, what are they? They're the law. It's the books of the law. It's, it's, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's the Pentateuch. It's the foundation. That was what Moses was. Moses was the law. What of Elijah? Well, Elijah, of course, was a great prophet. What, 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 what of Jesus? What did Jesus say in terms of His coming? What did He come to fulfill? The law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets. They're summed up in Jesus. I believe that Moses and, Jesus, Moses and Elijah were there to testify to who Jesus is. And you know, Moses, he had a mountaintop experience, didn't he? Moses in Exodus in chapters 33 and 34, we certainly don't have time to read all of this today, but in Exodus 33, Moses meets with the Lord. It says he took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. And you see from there, God continues to 
to make promises to Moses of his presence and how he will work. And as we continue on in verse 17 of chapter 33 of the book of Exodus, so the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, please show me your glory. And then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. As we continue on, God answered this request of Moses to to just observe, to witness his glory. And he says in Exodus 34 and verse 5, Now the Lord descended into the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see, Moses had an experience on a mountain. Moses, too, had observed the glory of the Lord. Moses had heard of the promises of salvation. It's right that Jesus brought Moses to this place to testify of who he was and is. Elijah, of course, we know he too had an experience on a mountain. In 1 Kings in chapter 18, we find an incredible work of God there through the, through the prophet Elijah as he's there contesting with and, 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 and standing his ground against the prophets of Baal. As he says to them in chapter 18, verse 22, Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. And so here he's, he's thinking, man, this is a precarious situation. But nevertheless, he's going to stand his ground, and therefore let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And of course, as you know the story, he goes on to perform an incredible act of God. As he says later on in the chapter, Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Once again, we don't have the time for this today, but the fact of the matter is, if you take the account in Exodus 33 and 34, 1 Kings 18, and what we see here in Matthew chapter 17, and put them side by side, they parallel quite well. And each of these men, they serve to point people to Christ, and now they're here with Jesus. These various mountaintop experiences with God that were not equal in nature, rather they now converge in the person of Jesus Christ. They point to Jesus, only Jesus, as Scripture tells us. Hear Him, listen to Him. That's what these men were left in all the glory that they see when it comes to that place, when they're touched on the shoulder and told to stand up and to not be afraid. The only thing that's there is Jesus. And such is true in our lives. Now it says back in Matthew 17 and verse 9, it says, now as they came down from the mountain... Folks, listen, mountaintops are, are important in Scripture. They're there throughout Scripture, but they always come down. They always come down from the mountain, and so must we. We can't live up there as, as much as we might like to. Let's give Peter the benefit of the doubt. Maybe what, maybe what it is that he was thinking at the time was if we pitch some tents, we can just stay here. 
I know there's experiences in my own life and certainly yours as well where you're experiencing such a move of the Lord, such a move of the Spirit, and all you want to do is just stay right there. Like Noah recently in the ark, and God calls him out of the ark, says, Noah's time to go. You don't get to stay here anymore. They had to come down. But listen, just because we have to come down doesn't mean that what you experienced there didn't happen. It doesn't change what happened. Peter would later write in his second letter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 17-19, through 19, listen. Peter would write, For he received from God the Father honor and glory. He's talking about Jesus. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And in verse 18, Peter says, And we heard this voice. We heard it. Which came from heaven when we were with him on the mountain. You see, Peter's so moved by this that many years later he's writing, he's saying, I was there, I heard it. I experienced it. And so he says in verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. He says we have the word of God and it's true. It's proven. I was there, I saw it. He says it changed me. It gave me faith. It gave me hope. It gave me peace. Now here's the thing. Though Peter here in this moment, in this letter that he's writing, now he's telling of it. Now he's, now he's, he's writing and, and we're reading from the mountain of the Holy Scriptures, if you will. At this particular time, Jesus said, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. In the latter part of verse 9, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one. When? Until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. You see, Jesus said it's not time yet. And he plainly says, not until I've risen from the dead. Which we could say, well, why, why don't the disciples understand then yet? Well, Mark tells us they questioned what he meant. Mark gives us that insight. He says they're wondering, they're questioning, what is he saying? What exactly is he saying? And so the fact is, once again, it's the cross before the crown. And Jesus knew this. You see, the glory of God, the glory that was revealed on that mountaintop means little to humanity without victory over death. Jesus could have shown off in a million different ways and it would have meant nothing if He hadn't gone to the cross. All the opinions of people out there who say, well, yeah, this God in heaven, He's just some big God who wants to make my life difficult. If He's so wonderful, if He's so powerful. You see, their, their opinions of God would be true if He hadn't have died but He gave of Himself for us. You see, we often want the glory, but the suffering must come first. And so Jesus says, not yet. And in effect, if I could, He says, there's still another mountain. And in verse 10, and His disciples asked Him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And so you see the disciples, again, they're questioning all of this. And you can understand why. This is a lot for them to take in. And they also, they do understand the Scriptures and, and they know in Malachi in chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6, it says that Elijah's going to come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So they have this sense of, okay, Elijah's supposed to come first, but yet, who had they just seen? They had just seen Elijah. And, and you know, Scripture tells us, as I alluded to, that, that they were talking, they were, they were chatting with one another. It's Luke, though, who gives us insight into what they were talking about. In Luke chapter 9, verse 31, it says that they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
You see Moses and Elijah, they come and they're there with Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration and the disciples are watching and they're listening and, and here as Moses and Elijah come, they're talking with Jesus and they're saying, you're going to die soon. You're going to die. And no doubt considering how their work, how God had used them is coming and, and, and it's being brought to a point where Scripture will be where, where the Word of God will be accomplished as they spoke of his soon death. And so the disciples are trying to understand all of this and what it is that Jesus is saying. In verse 11, Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. And likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. You see, going back to what uh, Jesus had said earlier according to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 14 and Matthew 11, Jesus had already given insight into the role of John the Baptist who came in the spirit of Elijah serving to prepare the people for the Messiah to come. But just as they did not receive John the Baptist and did to him whatever they wanted, so they will do to Jesus. But what Jesus understands as he's already stated is that this is all necessary. Jesus knows that for His glory to fully be revealed, as it was just in part there on the mount a moment ago, that the mountain called Calvary was next. And so He would willingly go. But see, the amazing thing for us this morning as we consider this season of Advent that's intended to, to foster and create hope within us is that though there was another mountain, we know that it would not end there. For though He would be crucified, Though he would die and be buried, he would be victorious over death. As the song A Living Hope tells us, then came that morning that sealed the promise his buried body would begin to breathe. Out of silence, the roaring lion declared that the grave has no claim on me. You see, Jesus is our living hope. But here's the amazing thing, and this is grace, grace upon grace, that friends, it does not end there. You see, there is yet another mountain. After His resurrection, He appeared and ministered to many, including the disciples, and, and then He made His way to a place called the Mount of Olives. And in Luke 24, beginning in verse 46, Jesus says, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And from here, we know that Jesus would ascend into heaven on the Mount of Olives. But you see, this is not the only thing that happens on that mountain. First, Jesus, as He said in John chapter 14, verse 3, I go and I prepare a place for you, that I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And listen guys, Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, verse 52, that in a moment, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Notice that word changed. Do you know what word that is? It's transformed. It's metamorphosis. Just like Him. In 2 Corinthians in chapter 3, verse 18, Paul writes, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror 
the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. First John, John writes in, in that first letter in chapter 3, verse 2, he's a beloved. Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Friends, what greater hope than a living hope in Jesus who shows us His glory, who showed His disciples His glory, and, and, and He says, this will be you. I'm not just showing you my glory because I want to show off. I want you to see what's to come. And on that final mountain, the only mountain that's left, there's only one more mountain, that Mount of Olives where He ascended. We read in Acts in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as He went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw Him go. There's one more mountain, friends. It's on that same mountain where He will come in great power and great glory. As we read in Revelation 19 and verse 11 and following, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And listen, verse 14, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's you, Christian. That's you. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself, Jesus alone, Jesus only, will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself, Jesus alone, treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Friends, the season of Advent is about faith and hope and peace, and love, and joy. And this is experienced, I would submit to you, when we remember the mountains. When we tell of the mountains. When we consider the law and the prophets and how they find their fulfillment in Jesus. That His glory is fully revealed in the mount called Calvary and in His victory over death. That His promises to us are that we will share in that glory. That just as He ascended on the Mount of Olives, so He will return us with Him in garments of white. Let's tell a world in need, a world in need of hope of the mountains of God. The mountains of promises. The mountains of victory. The mountains of His glory. Let's tell the world of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team up to close us out in song. Father, we pause here, Lord, before You. Lord, grateful, that being a significant understatement, Lord, of who You are. And yes, Lord, in this season of Advent, we are called, Lord, to look back and to remember it's good that we do. To look back on how throughout history, Lord, You have made a way, Lord, consistently. You have showed up, Lord. You have met with people. 
over and over and over again, Lord, on those mountaintops where you demonstrated your glory and your power. Know that, God, we would understand that the glory that you reveal will someday, Lord, because of your grace and mercy, be ours as well. That even now we are being transformed, yet there will come a time where in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, it will all occur, Lord, will be made different and will be with you forever. And we will come again. You first for us, Lord, and then us with you to rule and reign for a thousand years. And then with you, Lord, as you establish a new heaven and a new earth. Lord, it is beyond our understanding. Yet, Lord, as we consider it all, we know, Lord, it's intended to give us hope for the future. Confidence, Lord, in what's to come because you have proven yourself faithful. Lord, we know that you will be faithful. That you will come for us, Lord. And so in this season of Advent, Lord, in this Christmas season, as we begin a new year, Lord, one that is already, Lord, being set up to, as Pastor Bobby prayed this morning, that if we look at it with the eyes of men, it doesn't look good. Lord, you call us to look higher than this earth. You call us to set our hope as an anchor in the heavens, to trust in you and to look to you. And so, Lord, be our living hope. Keep our eyes fixed upon you, Lord. Cause us, Lord, to move forward, to press on, Lord, with hope and with joy and with love and with faith because of what it is that you've done for us, Lord, and what you're yet going to do. Do that work in our hearts here this morning, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.